What if I told you that we were experiencing a moral crisis, the antecedents of which are almost untraceable, that our moral tradition is fragmented, that we are living through the ethical version of a canticle for Leibowitz, putting together unreconcilable scraps and arguing without roots. Well, listener, that's the theme of today's podcast. John and I are opening our After Virtue series. What's up, John? What's up, man? That was almost like a Rod Serling kind of thing. And yeah. This is the Twilight was, Zone. Was, <laughs> you are now entering <laughs> the After Virtue Zone. <laughs> uh, we're excited to bring this one to you guys. It's um, something that we've been gesturing towards, and I think naming is a series we wanted to do. Mm. Uh, for a while there's for sure going to be background noise because they are definitely doing construction in my apartment building this week so i'll hear anything so okay cool that's all good sick anyway uh this is something we've been talking about for a while Uh, we've mentioned it in a few podcasts and we just decided to jump in and do it uh as you know john and i are both fans of ancient philosophy especially Aristotle, or at least that's where we overlap. I think I'm a little bit more interested in um, Plato, but uh, we were interested in taking on somebody who was interested in primarily why all ethical discussion feels like cynical manipulation and why it seems like there is so little traction on ethical arguments, you know, why you can't really convince somebody or it feels like everybody is just, you know, on either side of their own Maginot lines. Yeah. Pretty like just kind of getting bifurcated into just two separate, like hermetically sealed ideology cages and you send out messages to each other, but they just bounce off and it's kind of like, it almost feels like when you talk, it's more for you at this point. Dialogue isn't really like something that you even maybe imagine you're really going to be taking place in. And right. That's weird. And there's also sometimes this sneaking internal suspicion that you haven't totally convinced yourself that within you, once you go to announce your argument, there's something missing. It is as if there's no banister on which to put your hand and you're not sure what your commitments are rooted in, if they can be rooted in anything other than your own preferences. And that, that really seems to be the game is everybody is arguing for their own preferences rather than truths. Yeah. Which is something that Alistair McIntyre, who is a, I guess one of the, maybe more famous virtue ethicists, you know, in the game it has been for a while. Um, he, so I previously, I think in one of the Lash episodes, I said that, you know, it's weird Lash isn't engaging with McIntyre. who's probably one of the foremost representatives of communitarianism. And then so I reread this. Yeah. And, and he's, he's like, I'm not a communitarian. And you're like, he's like, I'm in Fuck. no way a communitarian. And I was like, I read that line and I remembered saying that. And I was like, yep. Yeah. Damn. Oh, 
Yeah, <laughs> I, you I'm got glad me. you brought that up because I was gonna. If you didn't, <laughs> um, and we we're just like, and that was, I think, our impetus. We were like, well, we should really read him then. If like Lash isn't gonna do his homework, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like owned. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I, we weren't really gonna get into it, but he he brings up he's not a communitarian because while he thinks community is important, um, community is not important in and of itself to him, which you know. It's a fair point. Um, He finds that community, it's the vehicle for collectively securing common goods, which aim towards the ultimate good, the, uh, the summum bonum of human life. And insofar as you have a community not geared towards doing that, he's not really interested in it. And I think that's probably, it's just worth pointing out because I Mm -hmm. think that he's been called a communitarian quite a bit among other things, a postmodernist, a relativist and different things that he'll end up addressing at various points, but he's not a communitarian. He's not a conservative uh, in his own mind. He says that, you know, quite fairly contemporary conservatism is pretty much just contemporary liberalism and neither are really interested in a collective sense of human good. Um, or the ability to even have that be a part of your public discourse, much less your public life. So I think like Lash, he's kind of a similar figure in that we're trying to chart away from those lines and distinctions because they're not really helpful to us and what we're trying to do. And we're ending up in a place that's not really easily, you can't easily categorize what's going on here, which I think is probably something you could say about Lash too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm interested in these sort of um, quasi or perhaps pseudo conservative figures that come out of the left in the... And McIntyre was a Marxist originally. Right, Um, right. And and his big problem was that he felt like Marxism lacked like a genuinely respectable moral component mm -hmm. as as he found it. Because he was, well, he was really dissatisfied with the response to Stalinism being rooted in liberalism. He felt like Marx has fully rejected liberal moralism. So how can you appeal to that in order to reject Stalin? Yet he still wanted to himself reject Stalinism, but in a way that didn't betray the fundamental insights of Marx, which leads him to become a neo-Thomist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is such a surprising turn of events. Like, I absolutely love it. It's so charming. I'm like, that mm-hmm. rules. That rules. And he doesn't even make that full pivot, pivot Excuse me, to Thomism until after he writes After Virtue, which is probably his most famous book. It's when he has to respond to critiques of After Virtue that gets into Thomas Aquinas. And as he says finds that Aquinas is more Aristotelian than Aristotle. Yeah. (laughs) Which I imagine could be sung to the tune of a certain Rob Zombie song. Um, So, Well, yeah, let's jump in. I was about to say, so at the top of the podcast, I talked about like the sort of canticle for Leibowitz idea where he says that we're basically, he says, okay, what if you had science but at some point there was a revolt against science and all of its institutional structures its major texts or whatever were destroyed and then after that there's sort of a counter-revolution that tries to restore science but it is left literally with only fragments of the materials of its founding 
and people seem to be engaging in these debates about what science was or what it is, but they can't actually access it in any real way. And that these debates take on a kind of arbitrary, hopeless quality where no one seems to be able to actually terminate an argument in any way. Yeah, you've got kids memorizing what's left of the periodic table of elements in a sort of like, you know, can't. And you've got a half half of hypotheses without any of the theoretical underpinnings, which made them understandable being debated about. And, you know, you've got missing words and you're not even really sure what the surrounding scientific context of it was. It's like, I kept thinking of like the Warhammer 40 K universe where it's like, you know, we don't mm-hmm. remember how any of this was made, but we have like religious figures maintaining everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Supplicate to the machine spirits. Hell yeah, dude. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Warhammer 40 K. Yeah. You go along far enough and there's been like some radical breaks or so much time has passed that you can't really integrate any of it into a coherent narrative. Things are sort of like, um, reference yeah so what if that was true but about morality what if that really happened that's kind of that's his disquieting suggestion to us is that given what we outlined at the beginning of the pod just about like how things feel so weird like what if the reason for that was that there was a gradual but devastating collapse of our ethical substructure, substance, framework, tradition. What if that had slowly rotted and now we were left with its fragments, but we were under the impression that nothing had happened. And, you know, he suggests that if we wanted to find out like, okay, how do we know that this happened or not? We need to engage in the practice of history because it would be a historical phenomenon to be able to see this happening. But couldn't do it with academic history. And this is also serves as an explanation as to why we're not aware that it happened because academic history, he'll say, it's quite possible that academic history came about after this collapse and is also something of a byproduct of this collapse. And it'll become pretty clear why he suggests that as we go on through the book. But what he'll say for now is that we need the history rather than a a modern academic historian, we need the history of Hegel or Vico Giambattista or R.G. Collingwood. Yeah, I was amazed that he brought up Vico. Oh, yeah. I've read The New Science. It's a wild-ass book. Deep Um, cuts. Deep cut. Very deep cut. And I thought that that was particularly sly because it shows that he's interested in origins as such. Hmm. and trying to find, meet them on their own terms. Hmm. And if you want to discover whether or not something existed and then disintegrated, you have to have an evaluative framework that's capable of apprehending that, I guess would be a good way of putting it. Like, and he, the academic historical framework isn't in his mind like the current going one because you can't really have evaluative judgments like that. Like it's not really something that you can argue with ease. 
not in the way that he's going to do it anyway. Like a value neutral viewpoint isn't going to serve you well where we're going. You need to have some idea of standards um, of, you know, you have to believe in something like a Zenith is <laughs> possible in right. like a meaningful term. Right. Um, it's not merely a series of discrete and virtually qualitatively identical periods. Um, so that's, that'll be something important and preliminary, but at this point, he just wants us to say like, can you accept that this is possible? And I think both of us were like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like hundred percent, dude. I'm, I'm with you. I'm there. I, I can believe that that is possible. And he, uh, so he lays this out and he says, you know, if what I've said is true, basically, we're already in a state so disastrous that there are no large remedies for it, which I thought that's, uh, that's on brand for us. Yeah. <laughs> that pretty much lays the groundwork. And so the first place he's going to take us is the problem as we understand it. Like what's our direct day-to-day experience of the problem. And so he's going to say that, you know, when we make moral utterances, moral speech act statements, it's almost as if we're talking past one another. And he gives us like a handful of examples of what common contemporary moral arguments are. And I think it might be worthwhile to uh, just read through those because after he gives you um, these examples, he's going to walk through what I think is a pretty tight argument, which, you know, making use of them as a reference, it's, yeah. Yeah, so these are three arguments. And this book comes out in 80. So there is going to be, the first one is like a Cold War referent, basically. Um, still relevant today, but worth contextualizing. Yeah. So one, argument A, a just war is one in which the good to be achieved outweighs the evils involved in waging the war and in which a clear distinction can be made between combatants whose lives are at stake and innocent non-combatants. But in a modern war, calculation of future escalation is never reliable and no practically applicable distinction between combatants and non-combatants can be made. Therefore, no modern war can be a just war and we all now ought to be pacific. Argument 1B. If you wish for peace, prepare for war. The only way to achieve peace is to deter potential aggressors. Therefore, you must build up your armaments and make it clear that going to war on any particular scale is not necessarily ruled out by your policies. An inescapable part of making this clear is being prepared both to fight limited wars and to go not only to, but beyond the nuclear brink on certain types of occasion. Otherwise, you will not avoid war, and you will be defeated. 1c. Wars between the great powers are purely destructive, but wars waged to liberate oppressed groups, especially in the third world, are a necessary and therefore justified means for destroying the exploitative domination which stands between mankind and happiness. Okay, now here's the second round of arguments he's going to run through, right? So this is 2A. Everybody has certain rights over his or her own person, including his or her own body. It follows from the nature of these rights that at the stage when the embryo is essentially part of the mother's body, 
The mother has a right to make her own uncoerced decision on whether she will have an abortion or not. Therefore, abortion is morally permissible and ought to be allowed by law. 2B. I cannot will that my mother should have had an abortion when she was pregnant with me, except perhaps if it had been certain that the embryo was dead or gravely damaged. But if I cannot will this in my own case, how can I consistently deny to the others the right to life that I claim for myself? I would break the so-called golden rule unless I denied that a mother has, in general, a right to an abortion. I am not, of course, thereby committed to the view that abortion ought to be legally prohibited. C. Murder is wrong. Murder is the taking of an innocent life. An embryo is an identifiable individual, differing from a newborn infant only in being at an earlier stage on the long road to adult capacities, and, if any life is innocent, that of an embryo is. If infanticizes murder, as it is, abortion is murder. So abortion is not only morally wrong, but ought to be legally prohibited. And here's the third round. 3A. Justice demands that every citizen should enjoy, so far as possible, an equal opportunity to develop his or her talents and his or her other potentialities. But prerequisites for the provision of such equal opportunity include the provision of equal access to healthcare and to education. Therefore, justice requires the governmental provision of health and educational services financed out of taxation, and it also requires that no citizen should be able to buy an unfair share of such services. This in turn requires the abolition of private schools and private medical practice. 3b. Everybody has the right to incur such and only such obligations as he or she wishes, to be free to make such and only such contracts as he or she desires, and to determine his or her own free choices. Physicians must therefore be free to practice on such terms as they desire, and patients must be free to choose among physicians. Teachers must be free to teach on such terms as they choose, and pupils and parents to go where they wish for education. Freedom thus requires not only the existence of private practice in medicine and private schools and education, but also the abolition of those restraints on private practice, which are imposed by licensing and regulation by such bodies as universities, medical schools, the AMA, and the state. So McIntyre, he's going to say that what are the, there, there are three things that characterize every single one of these arguments. The first thing is that they are all conceptually incommensurable, which means, so first, all of the conclusions in those arguments follow from the premise. Um, you know, there's nothing like illogical about what was just said. However, we possess absolutely no rational means for evaluating those premises at all. And each one of them employs a completely different evaluative and normative concept as it's, as it's like um, axiom, basically. We have no societal means to adjudicate between those various appeals to survival, justice, rights, universalism, freedom. No way to make a decision between them. Thus, our moral debates are in fact assertion and counter-assertion in practice. And not only that, but this being the case, 
we are all, I think, like you were saying, we're uneasily suspicious of our opponents of having made an irrational decision to, you know, commit themselves to a position. And we think to ourselves, like, at base, it's arbitrary because somewhere in the back of our own minds, we also understand that we're suspicious of ourselves and the fact that our own commitments may be equally arbitrary. Right. Think about how many times you've heard somebody, especially in politics, forward a point of view, and you're like, well, that's just their own biases. Yeah. They're clouded by something. Like if they understood things rationally. But then, I would say if you're honest with yourself, there's some sneaking suspicions you have that you aren't clear of your own biases. And that, in fact, there's no clearing house overall for these competing claims. And you know that these competing claims have radically different views of society, that they can't be adopted at once, and that there's no real way to formally synthesize them in any type of governing policy. To do so would to legislate an absurdity that would be inactive. Yeah, food for thought. (laughs) Um, The second thing which characterizes these arguments is that they are purportedly impersonal and rational by the, the very manner in which they are said. Like the words that are used all imply that we are appealing to some standard that each of us can recognize and judge by. Um, They're rational arguments. I mean, when you go through them, you're like, each of these makes sense on its own terms. Mm-hmm. So he asks us um, to consider two forms of injunction. And the first form is, do this because I wish it. And the second form is do this because it maximizes utils. Do this because it's your duty. Do this because it is just. Do this because it is right. Any of those um, form the second form of injunction. Now, the first form of injunction presupposes a force of personal relations as the basis for why I would expect you to respond to my injunction. However, the second presupposes that we have a shared and impersonal criteria that I can appeal to, and then I can leave it up to you to decide if you agree with me or not, which, you know, it's like a fairly standard idea. Like just, I'm talking like history of philosophy. This is like, we're in Athens, we're members of a polis. This is what I think is the appropriate way to influence people, like politically and morally, like you know, it's, um, it's dialectics or whatever. Yeah. And it's your standard for engaging with the society that you live in, right? Like whether you agree or not totally on everything, there are just going to be some things that you assume in common because you live in the same society. Mm -hmm. And so McIntyre says that, you know, the form of our contemporary moral utterances is definitely the second one. We're presupposing a shared and impersonal criteria. However, those utterances seem to conceal in reality that we're really, what we're really saying when we say that is do it because I wish it. Mm -hmm. And it merely seems that we are covering the first with the second, um, which is an important point. And then the third thing that each of these share is that they're, originating out of completely heterogeneous sources. The moral claims we, the Emmett just read for us, have intellectual genealogies spanning from Aristotle 
to Fichta, to Machiavelli, to Rousseau, to Adam Smith, to Marx, etc. Um, many, many more that I haven't named. And so McIntyre says that these concepts, which inform our moral discourse, were originally at home in a larger totality of theory and practice, in which they enjoyed a role and function supplied by the context of which they have now been deprived. You know, Adam Smith wrote during a time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and at that time, people were doing things. There were institutions that no longer exist. There were governments, societies, nations that no longer exist. Um, it was a different world in a different place. And the same, but even more so for like every other person on that list. They had an initial context of which they have now been denuded. Right. So one way that I'll bring this up is there are oftentimes when I'm teaching and sometimes when I see um, colleagues of mine engaging in certain arguments, this happens a lot with Thucydides, I would say, or it's like the last time I saw it where you're reading Thucydides and you're like, wow, democracy is bad, right? Like you're going through and you're like, this led to some very bad decisions that were catastrophic, quite literally for Athens. It's also important that Thucydides doesn't finish his project in the Peloponnesian War because the way it shakes out afterwards is not so much an endorsement of aristocracy or oligarchy <laughs> after all anyway. But, you know, Thucydides is an incredibly sharp, systematic thinker. Some of that gets lost in translation. But the way it gets treated, the way that we read it, understandably, I would say, is that you treat it as if this is an indictment of democracy for all time that things just always work out this way, that there is nothing specific in the content of Athenian democracy, that you can say that in more than superficial ways, American Republican liberal democracy is basically the same as Athenian direct democracy. Not so. And that also isn't to say, because I don't think that McIntyre is saying this, that there is nothing to be gained from reading these things because they live in their own historical context. Rather, that you cannot appreciate what it might have to tell you about your current time if you do not contextualize it within the time it was written. Yeah, he points out, like Emmett's saying, that a lot of the concepts that are going to be played in these works um, and then they enter into our everyday speech have undergone like multiple shifts in meaning over the centuries. And like, if you think about it, when I say virtue, like that would mean one thing to us today. It would mean something else to people in the 19th century. And it would mean something else to a Roman during the Republic, you know, mm -hmm. like virtue originally is manly courage. Yes. Um, it's something that you'll primarily distinguish yourself with in war. However, that's not really like that semantically did not really carry over to us today. In the same way, I could say piety, and you might think of somebody who prays a lot, but initially, pietas is a deference not only to divinity, but to fathers, um, you know, both fathers of the state and your own father or your sponsor, people who have looked out for you, who you know owe things to. Like, it characterizes a vast series of social relations in the time of the Roman Republic, and, you know, just to say that, like, 
things have meant completely different things multiple times, but we'll now read a book and read that word and just transmit it right into my own context and imagine that I'm understanding what was going on. Right, exactly. Bloom talks about this in his introduction to his translation of The Republic, where he takes on, I think the guy's name is Cornfield, who basically translates arete, which gets often translated as virtue, as something just like social good. <laughs> something like that. He takes like this insane liberty. And in that guy's introduction to his translation, he's just like, well, that's what he meant. And Bloom's point is like, I mean, that assumes a lot in the translation. Like you should not make that decision for the reader. Instead, your translation should be infidelity to the Greek itself to the extent that you can, so that the reader can through that clarity, decide for themselves if Plato meant social good by it. Now, every translator is going to have to do some work of interpretation of them for themselves, but there is a such thing as more and less. Yeah. <laughs> so McIntyre is going to ask us, can we establish a history then of the movement and the transformation of these concepts that we use every day? And one of the major roadblocks to this is going to be the fact that academic moral philosophy has basically been carried on in a completely ahistorical fashion pretty much to this day. Not everyone is this way, obviously. Um, I wouldn't pretend that they all are. It's the same way in political philosophy. Um, you'll sit down and you'll be told to read Plato and Aristotle and just look at the arguments. Does the argument hold? If it holds, it's true. If it doesn't hold, it's not true. Doesn't matter what was going on in Athens. Doesn't matter at all. Then you go read Kant and the same thing. And it's like, you know, I don't care that he was a Prussian pietist, Protestant. You know, like none of that's going to enter into me reading these logical arguments. And this will obviously be problematic for you if you want to have any understanding at all of what has happened which I feel like, you know, to me, I'm like totally on board with that. Like, yeah, that makes a hundred, that makes sense to me. Um, it's yeah. It's a limitation of the St. John's school of thought that I encountered in grad school, you know, where I work OGB, we don't really do a lot of direct teaching. It's more seminar style. So by default in the way that St. John's does, we, I would say make a lot of this mistake. Now there are ways to guide things where you can avoid some of these pitfalls, but I'd say it's a common problem. I agree with McIntyre here. So he's going to set that aside for a moment, and we're going to move on to talk about something called emotivism, which we may have even brought up before on this show. When talking oh, for Lash. sure. We've definitely talked about it when we talked about Lash, and I talk about it in my um, Oligarchy of Sob Stories piece. Mm. He, um, he says so for, to give us a little definition. Emotivism is the doctrine that all evaluative judgments, and more specifically, all moral judgments, are nothing but expressions of preference, expressions of attitude or feeling, which it's something that we've kind of been implying for a while now is the result of the incommensurability of our moral concepts when we come into dialogue with one another. But it's, it also, and we'll get into this later, like, it's the is-ought distinction kind of coming into play from Hume. Like there are facts about the world that can be true or false, but moral judgments admit of no such categorization. Um, they just simply are. 
And McIntyre's taking this on initially as a challenger, and he's going to say, in that light, it utterly fails. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's for three reasons. Um, actually, no, more than three reasons. Uh, in attempting to decisively connect an utterance to a feeling, it can never provide what that feeling is beyond the fact that it's one of approval. So I say that when you say something is good, what you really mean is I approve of it. This is like the traditional emotivist formulation. Um, but I approve of it isn't really a feeling if you're trying to say like, oh, you know, it's a vague argument is what McIntyre is going to right, say. Yeah. And it's, I approve of it and you should also, right. That's yes. the second part of it. It attempts to equate two types of utterances, which have directly contradictory implications, which is what we just got into the two types of injunctions. It's saying they are one and the same, but if this is so, why are they two? Why did they develop in this way? Why do they both exist? And why, if you're an emotivist, do you need to try and make this argument to begin with? Um, mm -hmm. And so he'll go on to say, you know, well, that being said, a feeling is not a meaning a sentence can have. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, he's going to go on to make the emotivist argument, I think, a bit better. And he's going to say what they should have done is make a distinction between use and meaning. Mm -hmm. Now, a sentence can have a meaning, but then have a completely different use. And one Sarcasm example gives, being a pretty good example. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he mentions like a schoolmaster who's really like pissed off at a kid who won't get something right. And he says, you know, seven plus seven is 14. Yeah. And it's like that sentence has a meaning, but a completely different use from the obvious meaning. Mm -hmm. um, now, we can then assert that use and meaning have become highly discrepant in the case of these moral utterances, which, you know, like that's fair. That seems an act. That seems like an accurate description, which means that meaning can thus conceal use and kind of appear as the outer garment of something totally different. And what then follows is that we could not safely infer what someone who has uttered a moral judgment was doing by merely listening to what they said. Um, and even further, that speaker themselves may in fact be concealing their own use with meaning from themselves. Uh, they may be engaged in a form of self-delusion about what they are really doing, which I think is, you know, that's sort of what we mean when you say that you engage in these arguments with people and you think they're acting in bad faith and you're not, but then in the back of your mind, maybe you're no different from them. Um, yeah. Or there seems to be this chasm that you can't quite jump, hmm. right? What would, you know, really end this argument to what do you appeal? How do you demonstrate that your logic just, it just isn't self-interest? Let me put it this way. All sorts of horrible things have rational justifications. Here's a horrific example. Uh, rape can be seen as a mating strategy, right? Alex Kashuda and Jeff Schollenberger talk about this in, in an episode on Jeff's podcast I'll link to that goes into, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Urzabet Bathory. And her is like a figure, <laughs> you know? Um, Whoa. <laughs> yeah, which is wild. And you should listen to it. It's very fun. But that's something that Alex Kashuda brings up, right? That she mentions. So 
the idea that a type of logical walking through is going to be the thing that secures for you your perspective isn't enough, right? That's something that I think we really need to drive home here is at stake, right? Is that that doesn't resolve the self-interest problem. Yeah, that's, I mean, there are so many things you could say, but that's kind of the vacuity of the people who are kind of saying like, logic doesn't care about your feelings. Is yeah. that, you know, they basically have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> um, <laughs> they haven't yeah. even begun to understand the problem. Yes, exactly. So what do we, wh- how should we understand this theory? Because McIntyre's made it a little bit better. And while the emotivists might be claiming that this is true of all moral utterance of all time, that doesn't feel exactly right. So the next move is going to be, let's historicize emotivism. Um, let's understand emotivism as having come about from a particular moment, a particular context and people, mm-hmm. and try and ask ourselves what that means. And so he's going to point to uh, Cambridge, England, after 1903. This is going to be maybe like, the first moment we'll examine. And the reason for that is that one of the, this is not a text of emotivism, but this is, we'll call it like maybe a primary wellspring out of which the emotivist will come. The taproot. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And this is GE Moore's Principia Ethica, which was widely, widely read during that decade. So the Principia Ethica comes out and Here's the basic summary of what he says. Good is a simple, indefinable, non-rational property distinct from the pleasant or the evolutionarily adaptive or anything like that. It's something you can hardly talk about, I guess. (laughs) The next thing is that to call something good is classified as an intuition. So when I say this is good, I'm having an intuition and it's his own completely idiosyncratic use of that term. Next, intuitions, neither of proof nor of disproof. And then, furthermore, to call an action right is to say that it maximizes utility. And thus, no action is ever wrong in and of itself. There's only greater and lesser degrees of utility in an action. Some more concludes then that the greatest good we can aim at as human beings is personal affections and aesthetic enjoyment. That's it. Yeah. And so McIntyre is about to go ham. Um, So the first thing he says is Moore's main propositions are all logically independent of each other. And you can affirm or deny some or all of them totally consistently. Yeah. They don't participate (laughs) in each other. (laughs) Thus the utilitarian and the intuitionist elements have no reason for being wedded whatsoever. His argument that good is indefinable is plainly false and reliant upon a bad definition of definition and is more asserted than argued. And, you know, if you want to get a sense of whether or not he's right about this, you'd have to go read the Principia Ethica. I'm personally just going to take his word for it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yet this particular point, the illustrious Lord Keynes calls the beginning of a renaissance that the good is indefinable. Like he says, yeah, this is a renaissance in ethical thinking, basically. Right, right. It's uh, Christ owned. Plato oh, yeah, owned. 
uh, Lytton Strachey says it shattered all writers on ethics from Aristotle and Christ to Herbert Spencer and Mr. Bradley. <laughs> Amazing thing to say. There's a lot, there's like a million sort of quotes he pulls about this one specific point where like all of these people in the 1910s England are like masturbating to this book, basically like they're jubilant. Um, and that's kind of interesting for us to look at. So why would so many highly intelligent people indulge in what's basically absurd hyperbole about a patently false claim? Like that's the big question here. And McIntyre suggests that more is enabling people who already agree with his sentiments about the highest good, you know, that it's enjoying art and your friends <laughs> and <laughs> he's giving them a pass to establish their preference as more than mere preference and to cast off all the oppressive weight of the history of contradictory moral philosophy, particularly that of the 19th century, which is a point to which McIntyre says we will later return. Um, so what he thinks is really going on is more Strachey, like all these people are making great use of the forceful appearance in their language of both conviction and infallibility to establish something by personality while trying to give it the appearance of being impersonal and rational. Um, right. In other words, you could do a motivism to a motivism itself. Yeah. Right. And then you're going to have some serious questions about it. And so McIntyre uh, says that the acutest of the modern founders of emotivism were all students of Moore. And he names uh, F.P. Ramsey, Austin Duncan Jones, and C.L. Stevenson. And so he goes, he quips that it's not implausible that they confused moral utterance at Cambridge after 1903 with moral utterance as such and presented it as an essentially correct account of the former as though it were account of the latter. So basically the birthing moment of emotivism is people doing exactly what emotivism says they're doing. Like, and then emotivism is going to universalize this, this insight and say like, well, it's just true of everything ever. And mm -hmm. we really can't make any claims otherwise because look all around you. Like that's kind of the proof of emotivism is look all around you. Like, what do you see? And I think McIntyre's right to point out that that utterly lacks any historical imagination whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And also it's, it's so deeply cynical that it really makes any ethical project feel impossible from the get. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just, it's just somebody trying to get one over on you. Right. It's basically like what emotivism has promised in terms of a break from these standard traditions and to say, in fact, they're all just statements of like preference or, or what have you is that all ethical compulsion is basically cynically coercive to someone else's interest. Mm -hmm. You really couldn't argue for a common good in any yeah, of that, which over. an ethical project is going to need to be coherent at all. So, you know, all of the arguments that we walked through, right, when I was reading them out, have some idea of what a good that would be shared among people would look like, right? The reason why emotivism frustrates that is because they never get beyond or really can't maintain 
that status of a common good because it reduces it to coercion. I like this. You should like this too. But in order to get somebody to do that, you basically have to like make them do that or manipulate them to do it because they have their own preferences and you have to override those. And the only criteria you have is preference anyway. Mm-hmm. Which he, um, you know, he'll contrast that with somebody that he'll go on to argue against later, but he contrasts that with like, you know, take that for instance, everything is a statement of preference uh, and place it next to like deontology. Um, you know, like, and I'll, I went and, um, checked out Rick Roderick's video about the Kantian moral project, just so I could get a nice quote from him. Cause he puts everything so well. Yeah. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> and so just to briefly characterize what Kant is saying is, so we make, we take as a practical postulate that our will is free. Our will being thus free, we can make decisions. Being able to make decisions, we thus have the capacity to be moral agents in the strong sense. And the capacity to be a moral agent in the strong sense gives each human what Kant calls and what I think is worthy of calling dignity. And dignity for Kant means an unconditional worth. And Roderick brings up that I think we can understand really well what that means when we think of the judge who has to give a judgment on a wrongful death suit and put a dollar value to a human life, but it's unconditional. So you can't do that. So it's always going to be something inside of you that says, this is wrong. You know, like yeah. I don't pull wear guild, <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> you know, like a human being is more than that. And socially, what this means is you treat every other single human being as if they are an end and not a means. And it can't calls this the kingdom of ends. And McIntyre says that to treat people as ends means to be unwilling to influence anyone by any means other than providing them with reasons and allowing them to judge for themselves. And that means to treat others like that means to view them to treat others as other than that means to view them as instruments to your purpose. Yeah. It's not affording them that dignity. It's not treating them like moral agents. And for that to work, there has to be an impersonal rational standard by which we can all decide together what the good is. We all have to be able to have reference to the same thing for that schema to work out. And the claim of emotivism is that it doesn't and that it's impossible. And so one thing McIntyre will want us to look at is like, well, who are these people who are saying this? And in the first instance, the people we have looked at are the Anglo elite of the Oxbridge world in the period immediately before World War I. He's going to point out that's not the only place that we'll find this. It's just the first place that we've looked. But you can also, and he'll point to Nietzsche. What is Nietzsche's argument about morality that morality has always been the cloak for will to power that it was always a means by which you subdued the higher more noble and aristocratic instincts of better men to the weak resentment of the mob <laughs> yeah the first lesson i got in will to power was when i was a little kid i went to um a really hippy dippy daycare Right. Where if anybody like did anything to like hurt you or whatever, you'd say, that's my body and I don't like it. Mm. And they would stop 
right? Because it was like, oh, okay, I've done something wrong here. Mm-hmm. And then I remember going to school for the first time and some kid older than me just hauled off and decked me in the face. And I stood up and I was shocked. And I was like, that's my body and I don't like it. And he looked at me and he just went, I know. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. <laughs> you can't buy that kind of lesson. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's expensive um, and free all at once. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, another good example is Jean-Paul Sartre, for whom, you know, the basis of his existentialism is the fact that you're making a completely arbitrary choice, kind of as the basis of who you are, like your existence precedes your essence. Thus, any idea of like an end or a good or anything is totally foreclosed. And for all the differences between Sartre and Nietzsche, he's going to point out a basic fundamental agreement about human life. You can also find it in sociology at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also going to say that this like is basically in line with emotivism anyway. Like, is, you know. Yeah. Things that are seemingly disagreeing with each other are all holding one pretty fundamental axiom, which is that ends are arbitrary. Like the end of your life is arbitrary. You're choosing it arbitrarily. And this is, Suddenly, now at a certain point, one of the basic assumptions of like a wide array of schools of thought. So he's going to say, well, let's think about a world in which Kantianism is impossible, then, in a world in which any kind mm-hmm. of shared standard is impossible. What does that world look like? Well, that world is a meeting place for autonomous individuals, each seeking their own achievement of satisfaction. They interpret reality as a series of opportunities for their enjoyment, which. Man, what does that sound like? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That sounds like super familiar. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know though. (laughs) That's probably nothing. Yeah. Probably nothing to see here, folks. Someone else he's going to bring up, which, uh, you know, I think importantly is Max Weber. He's going to say implicit in Max Weber and his work on bureaucracy is the notion that all values or ends are non-rational and sentimental, and that in his understanding of how bureaucracy functions, distinctions between power and authority are totally dissolved, which that's going to be a special instance of the wider dissolution of any distinction between manipulative and non-manipulative speech. Right, and this is important here, right, because he's bridging a gap that I think is crucial. It's something he needs to do. There's a danger always when you're doing sort of this broad sweep ideological critique that you have this sort of um, bad thought virology. So he's going to have to walk through to some degree, how does this become concretized in our lives? So he's going to look at Weber and Weber is going to say like, look, the values of the bureaucracy are kind of like basically just instrumental and about what's efficient and effective for the bureaucracy itself. And that's just the way it is. Like, that's how the bureaucracy has to function. So that's what's going on. Now, as more of life becomes bureaucratized, Alistair is going to point out more of life operates with the bureaucratic ideology. Importantly, he wants to bring in critics of Weber 
who do more empirical work and say, you know, he doesn't get these elements quite right, or he, you know, makes mistakes here. And McIntyre says they're correct, right? These are good arguments. However, they don't depart from the basic insight of the instrumentality of bureaucracies where things collapse into means uberalis. Yeah, if you would right? like. So he's like, they've done the empirical work. This is, in fact, how it happens. This is the world we live in, is what he's arguing here, right? That is the real purchase here. Like, what you see every day with this is actual. It's not just some people who cooked up some weird shit in England, right? And then a bunch of people believed it. It's that, isn't it uncanny how these disparate thinkers and these institutions we live with every day now operate in this way? And then when you think back to his sort of canticle for, for Leibowitz crisis, a disquieting suggestion, you start to appreciate the full thrust of what he's saying is that the ground has been shifted from underneath our feet. And when we think that we are arguing for things on the terms of ethics and morality, that we have these logical standards of truth that we're bringing to bear with each other, that in fact, what we're really doing is pitting means uberalis against a different conception of means uberalis. This is our deadlock, is what he's saying here. And this is also why these things become so politically difficult, why it feels like nothing is possible. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you look at any way in which a bureaucracy attempts to justify itself, I'm willing to bet that you'll never find anything besides an appeal to its own effectiveness as an institution, um, which is what he says, like, that's the collapse, is all a bureaucracy can say to you is that it is an effective user of power, and that's why it should have power, and that's really all that's possible, um, and kind of in the same vein... So we're going to get into an idea of characters here. And he brings up like the medieval morality play. Um, I think you could also think of some other things like Greek drama or, you know, I'm sure plenty of analogs in like different forms of Japanese, like no drama and stuff like that, or the later ones, um, puppet plays, things like that. You've got, Things called characters, they're immediately recognizable to the audience. You see this guy, you know exactly what he is, what he's going to be like, what his motivations are going to be, and how he's going to act. And that's not simply because you've seen the plays a lot. That's because the plays have a direct correspondence to the world in which you live. Like these characters are real on the stage because they're real in real life. And they're distinct from social roles in the sense that you can imagine someone embodying a social role, but that having absolutely nothing to tell you about their beliefs or their motivations or what they're capable of. However, that's not true with a character. A character will tell you a lot about those things. Mm -hmm. And like that, the, like the, the sheriff who plays by his own rules. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> an American example of that. He's going to bring up two contemporary characters for us well three two are going to be really important the first is the rich aesthete we've kind of gestured at a little bit the second one is the bureaucratic manager and 
third one is the therapist. Ooh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tell me more. Yeah. Um, Say more, my friend. So basically, and I think it's an, like, these are our exemplars. And what that means, in, a, in the sense that they are, they morally legitimate modes of existence for us. Like, we look at them and we know that you can be that, that you can be that in that exact way. Like, a good example from right now way. might be the entrepreneur. Yeah. Right. Totally. Which we've talked extensively about. So, managers and therapists see themselves as unconcerned with values and ends. Um, this is kind of the thing that sort of makes them both the contemporary characters in a certain sense. Their action is restricted to the realm of facts. The therapeutic now has broad influence in almost all aspects of our social world, perhaps for this very reason. You know, you're a manager. You're not convincing people to do stuff because of the end of what they're doing, you know? Like, you can gesture to that, but that's not really your job in a way. And it'll take the same form as any form of moral utterance. It'll be utterly contestable because it's utterly undecidable. But really, as a manager, you're there to, like, make the flow better, you know, like the work happen smoother, more efficiently, keep the people under you functioning properly. That's so the genius it's about of the function. Boss from, yeah. It's the genius of the boss from office space, you know, who always has these ways of like never totally outright commanding you to do something was like, yeah, I'm going to need you to come in on Saturday. Cause if you're just saying <laughs> you're coming in on Saturday, whether you like it or not, right. That's a provocation that gets a certain response. The reason that character works in that movie is because it's a character in the way that Alistair McIntyre is talking about it. You recognize exactly the justifications, the, the ideological and psychological framework of somebody in that middle managerial position. And it's um, very similar with the therapist who really can't, by their very nature, have anything to say to you about what you're doing with your life, what your goals are, what they should be. Really, they have to sit there and help you, as McIntyre puts it, turn your neurotic energy into like a well-directed energy into whatever things you're doing that no longer causes you to have these symptoms and dysfunctional problems. So again, everything is kind of in terms of function and dysfunction or functioning more or less well, more or less efficiently. And which made me think of the therapist and the, the Sopranos which is like, mm -hmm. you know, like this guy's fucking killing people. <laughs> and you're and it just takes like, her a long time to realize like, yeah, she's just a psychopath. Like I can't help you. Yeah. It's not, <laughs> you know, and I think that the, the length of time it takes her to fully internalize that is part of what McIntyre is talking about here, because that's not really her job to make that type of evaluation. Now, of course, no mobster would ever see a therapist. They would be, killed right away and i'm guessing that any true therapist would immediately be like there are some real fucking problems here yeah right? so however this is like a walking through of a general type of problem and these characters and the institutions they represent like the therapeutic and the bureaucratic are focal points for our societal disagreement and mcintyre is going to say that our immense distrust of them 
actually reinforces the fact that this is the position that they hold because no matter what you think, you have to position yourself in reference to them. That's what they are. And, you know, I think it's a pretty effective argument for, like you were saying, the these things are distributed in our world, in our lives, these modes of thinking. We have to address them. And that is why the things that we're talking about that people were mentioning to each other in Cambridge are like globally significant, not because the people in Cambridge or even the like origin of this, just because they all share a same fundamental assumption about what's possible for a human being in our communication with each other. Right. And we've talked before on, on Voltron politics, when you look at somebody's like Twitter bio and it's just like Catholic anarcho-communist, like, you know, caliphate supporter or whatever. And you're like, how the fuck does all this fit together or whatever? And that's just because none of these things are really grounded. They're just sort of feelings that you have. You drape them over yourself. They're ways of forming your identity. Now there's a way to say that they're like, Oh, okay. There are all sorts of hypocrisies in society. No society has ever been, or any person has been innocent of hypocrisy. But we might meditate for a second on how the party of defending the family became so committed to absolutely destroying the family in America, right? Or we may wonder how the um, party that is so interested in minority rights and things like that also has minorities that backed and enforced Prop 22, which is like destroying and will destroy labor rights all over the country. And one of the ways that that starts to be possible is if these things are really just uh, cynical preference forwarding games and different types of coercion and things like that. And there is no way to really address a standard beyond any of them. In other words, everything is just kind of an opinion having and competing opinion having, and there's nothing to do about it. Now, what do we do? with the problem of pluralism itself with living in democracy where there are completing competing claims to things and that people have to figure out how to get along, how to make that happen, right? How to continue living together. These are questions we want to ask at the same time or walking through McIntyre's thing, or maybe you don't like democracy and you're like, I don't care about that question. I want to know how good people can rule. Fair enough. <laughs> I don't agree with that position, but I understand it to be a coherent one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think actually to your point, you know, this is going to end up going into from the social into a very personal place uh, in the next section where he talks about how what all of this is circling is evacuity of the self. And if you look at what Sartre is saying, if you look at what these different people are saying about what the self is, they're saying that the self is in and of itself absolutely nothing. And given that it is nothing, the self can thus be anything. You can adopt pretty much any standpoint. And like Emmett's saying, you can adopt multiple standpoints and discard them, I think we're realizing easily as well. And you know, what is that describing? It's describing a self which he says is ghostly and vague because it lacks the qualities which it once possessed, which enabled it to be more than that. And it now leaves itself, you know, we have to ask ourselves what moral modes are open to a self thus conceived 
Right. It's a self without history, a self without narrative, a self that doesn't have the sort of um, textures of integrating things into itself. Lash calls this the minimal self. That's his follow-up to the culture of narcissism. And he clarifies that that's really what he meant by narcissism. He did not mean necessarily self-interested behavior or superficiality or vainness. Yeah, egocentrism, none of that. Right. What he really means is that there is this inability to take the world as such, right? That we are in a permanent survival mode where we don't necessarily believe that anything will survive beyond us. And without the things beyond us, we retreat into the self, which then starts to dissolve the self because no man is an island. Yeah, I think it's a very, like, an interesting materialist, Aristotelian-esque argument for that coming about, which he jumps into something, which, like, the register of his speech changes entirely, and you feel like, oh, like, it just got real when he just starts saying, like, in the first person, like, my social reality is not something to be stripped away in order to find the real me, like... My social reality is a part of my substance and it in fact makes it possible to be anything at all. You know, he goes like, how could you imagine who you are if you were not a father, a brother, a mother, sister, son, a friend, you know, a compatriot, all these different things that you can be in relation to other people. And he goes on to say that individuals inherit a particular space within an interlocking set of social relationships Lacking that space, they are nobody, or at best, a stranger or an outcast. And which is a nice callback to Aristotle, who in the politics says that someone who has no need for society is either a beast or a god. Yeah, no, totally. I remember being like a teenager and trying to write an essay about how I was sad that people weren't tied to the land anymore. And now looking back, I'm like, I understand what I very dimly was attempting to articulate by that. At the time, I had no idea, but totally. There is a sense of like, you know, I knew about medieval stuff and I was like, well, when people had to stay where they were, like your friends wouldn't constantly be leaving, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like you wouldn't become really close with people and then never see them again which felt like that's kind of what it seemed characterized a lot of my life was long periods of being pretty like lonely and a loner. And then you get these moments where suddenly you make a lot of friends or something like you find a circle and then you're surrounded by people. And to you, it's like, well, this should be like the defining thing about my life then. Right. You know, like Mm -hmm. what my life is should this is it. Like, this is the life that I'm living. So it seems like this should be important to us. Right. And like, we should place our fellowship above plenty of other things, but the world is really not constituted in that way. And everyone disperses, you know, which, and I'm not going to say that that's not been true of a lot of other times and places either, but this is just sort of what I was going through personally. And so you would think like, well, you know, there are times and places where you could expect to have the people around you just stay around you because that 
it would be unthinkable otherwise, you know, like read Beowulf, like mm -hmm. when the people around him are no longer around him, he dies, you know, <laughs> like, and that's a cause of great shame. Yeah. They abandoned him before the dragon. Yeah. They're ashamed when they return home. His second humiliates them as they watch him die for letting that happen to him for in the moment of need walking away. It's an incredibly powerful moment. It's why you read the second half of Beowulf. Oh, a totally. Are, a lot of people are just like, oh, you just stop at the war with Grendel, like the stuff with the the dragon is kind of like meh. And I'm like, no. Like, no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, how dare you? Like, yeah. Uh, you know, I think of uh, Seamus Heaney is right on when the, the woman sings the, the lamentation at Beowulf's funeral that it is, in fact, the lamentation for the entire society because of what happens to them over time. They get conquered. Yeah, I mean, in the, the Anglo-Saxon poem, The Wanderer, um, incredibly sad. And a lot of that sorrow is all circling around, you know, where are the where are the lords of old, the bright male shining? Where are the ring givers? Where are the brothers, you know, you once had? Where is this world? Um, where are those people? Like there were once great kings, there were once valiant warriors, that whole kind of thing. They're all dead. And now you're alone, you know, and you're wondering like what is the nature of this earth that you're on, that all of this has now sunk into the past. Um, and you know, it's, and it's hard not to fall into a type of nostalgia, right? Yeah. By the way, McIntyre is not a nostalgist. No. We should make that clear. Is he's trying to identify a problem. He's not trying to romanticize the past. John and I have our own penchants for romanticizing <laughs> the past, as I'm sure you can tell. Um, he's I'm a better also, man than I. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, I try to be on guard for that, but it is also sort of, the way in which we meet these problems, right? And sometimes fail to meet them is that romanticism, I would say. Obviously, I don't want to live in a world where um, I have to burn wood to stay alive and things like that. I like that the lights come on when I flip a switch. I think that's pretty tight, you know? But we have our own problems to deal with. Yeah ethically and things like that. We have our own problems with the self. It seems very hard, very hard, especially now, especially in this pandemic, especially when some of us are still in lockdown to feel there's some sort of fellow feeling or common good. And what's our relationship to ourself? I wanted to read here. I talked about this at the beginning with John before we started recording that I wanted to read more Borges. And so I figured we would close out with, I think one of my favorite interrogations of the self. Borges is one of my favorite figures because he's sort of, he's like a, a, transition figure right in the way that Rilke is part of the transition from romanticism into modernism Borges straddles the line from modernism to postmodernism and I think that there's a lot to be pulled from how he talks about it this, this is a one paragraph story he wrote called Borges and I it's Borges the other one that things happen to I walk through Buenos Aires and I pause mechanically now perhaps to gaze at the arch of an entryway and its inner door. News of Borges reaches me by mail, or I see his name on a list of academics or in some biographical dictionary. 
My taste runs to hourglasses, maps, 18th century typefaces, etymologies, the taste of coffee, and the prose of Robert Louis Stevenson. Borges shares those preferences, but in a vain sort of way that turns them into the accoutrements of an actor. It would be an exaggeration to say that our relationship is hostile. I live, I allow myself to live so that Borges can spin out his literature and that literature is my justification. I willingly admit that he has written a number of sound pages, but those pages will not save me, perhaps because the good in them no longer belongs to any individual, not even to that other man, but rather to language itself or to tradition. Beyond that, I am doomed utterly and inevitably to oblivion, and fleeting moments will be all of me that survives in that other man. Little by little, I have been turning everything over to him, though I know the perverse way he has of distorting and magnifying everything. Spinoza believed that all things wish to go on being what they are. Stone wishes eternally to be stone and tiger to be tiger. I shall endure in Borges, not in myself, if indeed I am anybody at all, but because I recognize myself less in his books than in many others, or in the tedious strumming of a guitar. Years ago, I tried to free myself from him, and I moved on from the mythologies of the slums and outskirts of the city to games with time and infinity, but those games belong to Borges now, and I shall have to think up other things. So my life is a point-counterpoint, a kind of fugue and a falling away and everything winds up being lost to me, and everything falls into oblivion or into the hands of the other man. I am not sure which of us it is that's writing this page. Yeah, wow. <laughs> that's uh... <laughs> <laughs> I guess we should just leave it there, let Borges have the last word. Yeah. We're going to keep moving through the book. We're going to keep talking about it. We might even find things that we say in this episode that... Alistair McIntyre himself unravels and we'll have to relook mm -hmm. at them. I hope that that's the case. I hope that this isn't just a confirmation of everything I've thought, that it's a confirmation of everything I already assume about McIntyre. It's already proving to be somewhat different. Mm -hmm. And I hope you'll enjoy watching us go through that process of trying to figure out both what he means, what our relationship is to it and what that says about our world today and how we ought to live. So Stay safe out there, and we'll see you next week.